the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, we've done it. Uh, we just recorded an episode. I think it was a great episode. And uh, we were talking about racism, uh, anti-black racism in medicine we, with our esteemed guests, who we will introduce in a second. But Paul, can you first tell people, what, what do we do on this show? I've never been more happy to, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And boy, howdy what expert interviews we have today. I'd like to actually start by introducing one of our experts who also happened to be a producer for this episode. I'd like to introduce you all to Dr. Janiqua Caesar, um, and I'll let her introduce our guest. Before I let her do that, I want to let you know about her. She is an incoming MedsPeds resident. She is an accomplished health disparities researcher, and she is part of the National Working Group member of the White Coats for Black Lives Working Group. That was a lot of working groups that we got in there. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you people had the sense of this, but she is in a working group that works in a group, um, but is an important part of White Coats for Black Lives. And so before I say any more unnecessary words, I'm going to throw to Janiqua to explain a little bit more about the episode and our guest. Thanks for having me. On this episode, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Essien. Dr. Essien is an assistant professor of medicine and health equity researcher at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. His research focuses on racial and ethnic disparities and the management of cardiovascular diseases. He has recently applied this research framework to COVID-19, becoming a national expert in the health disparities that are disproportionately affecting racial and ethnic minorities during this pandemic. His work has been published in leading medical journals, and he has been interviewed by national news outlets, including The Hill, NPR, and CNBC. Dr. Essien teaches us the importance of acknowledging racism, how historical racism influences clinical judgment, and how clinicians can be anti-racist. So without further ado, let's get to it. Well, Utibe, we're very excited to talk with you tonight. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of things, but the first thing that we wanted to ask you is, can you give the audience a one-liner and maybe a hobby that you have outside of medicine? Sure. So my name is Utibe Essien. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and a health disparities researcher here as well. Um, I am a proud New Yorker and an avid Hamilton fan. I'm really looking forward to July 3rd, which is uh, when the Disney movie comes out. And so that's probably my big hobby right now. Does that include Weird Al's Hamilton Polka? I imagine not, and you don't have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you not. shouldn't. <laughs> uh, it's pretty good. People should check it out. Uh, sorry. If anyone else wants to ask a question, please go ahead. Uh, we, I mean, we could probably count that as your pick of the week, too. I'm glad you got that out there. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll ask my usual question, though certainly I've been amassing book recommendations at a speed that is um, heretofore unparalleled, but I, I could always use more. So I, I think I will ask my usual question. Um, tell me a book that you feel like every physician should read, medical, non-medical, doesn't matter, just um, anything that will broaden our horizons. Yeah, so the book, uh, Just Mercy, has really been one that stuck out with me since I read it about four or five years ago. Brian Stevenson, the author, actually spoke at the 
AAMC national meeting uh, last year or two years ago, back when we could do that sort of thing. Um, and it's, it's just a powerful book. He's a law professor, Harvard trained, who really speaks about the injustice in the uh, legal system around race and how critical it is to get proximate to his clients. And that's just something that I've been trying to do in my practice as well and hope that um, many fellow physicians would be interested in that space as well. I think he might have a TED talk that is t- speaks about the book if it's if it's what I'm thinking of. Anyway, we'll we'll put that in the show notes if it's if it's there. In case people don't have time to read like Paul, they can they can watch the 20 minute TED talk. There you go. Okay. There's also a movie now starring Jamie Foxx for uh, those who may be fans, as well as Michael B. Jordan. So that's easier as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just giving us every opportunity. I appreciate that. <laughs> Janiqua, do you want to ask a question? Okay. Um, so I'd like to ask, what's the best advice you've ever received as a learner? Yeah. So that kind of stumped me this morning as I was trying to think through. Um, so I, so I ended up writing down rather than the best advice I had as a learner was to tell the story. Um, I think that was really critical for me as an intern, as I was fumbling through my notes and my labs and trying to present patients on like busy nights post-call. Um, and my attending and resident was were just like, you are the most informed person about this patient in the room right now. No one else knows as much as you do uh, other than the patient about their story. And so just tell us the story. Um, and then for me, it just almost became um, like an opportunity to storytell in this way. And it, it wasn't performative, I would say, but that's something that I care about, um, telling stories and sharing. And so rather than really making sure I got the case right, um, what really stood out to me was telling the story. And I think that's changed the way that I went through residency and the way that I train uh, my residents and interns as well now. That's great. Yeah, stories, it's like a memory palace for remembering like what the patient told you, you know, when you put it into a narrative kind of helps helps out. So Paul, we'll, we'll do some picks of the week quickly if you have one. If not, we can go on to Janiqua. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got one. Um... I really struggled with this this week. I, I, I was trying to think of something relevant and then I scrapped that. And then I was just trying to think of something that I've enjoyed lately. And I just, I realized that I've spent much of the past, I don't know, three months, probably at least, at least the past couple of weeks, just chewing a hole in the inside of my cheek and you know, making sure that my jaw muscles are perpetually clenched. So I instead thought I'd pick something that I return to that just kind of soothes me and calms me down. And I do realize that a lot of the stuff that soothes me, most other people find grating and annoying and sound kind of nerve wracking, but that's okay. So I'm going to recommend um, the 1991 album Drive Like Jehu, which is the self-titled band, um, self-titled album from the band Drive Like Jehu. Um, I may have recommended another album by them before. So I, they they go by different genres, whether you want to call them post-hardcore or they were sort of described as early emo. But they, the reason I keep returning to them, even though it's like 20 years after the fact now, more than that, I guess, is because they completely exploded the way that I thought about music. Instead of just sort of verse course first, they seem to harness chaos in a way that's almost kind of mathematical, but still kind of raw. And it's just, it's music that I find incredibly inspirational because it just plays with structure. Um, and yet it's really powerful without being um, super duper cerebral. So it's one of my favorite bands, one of my favorite albums. So I will highly recommend uh, Drive Like Jehu for the 0.5% of you who would actually chase this down. Janiqua, what about you? I think I'll choose Homegoing by Yad Jossi. It's one of my all-time favorite books. It's historical fiction. 
It's centered on a pair of sisters. Um, set it, its setting um, is in Ghana, and the sisters get split up. And so one ends up marrying a slave trader, and then the other one ends up being sold as a slave and makes it to the United States. And so the author just does a beautiful job of showing their family um, lineage throughout the years. And in the U.S., you see a family go through slavery, and then the Jim Crow, and then the Civil Rights Movement, and then on the um, side with Ghana, you see the family go through just colonialism, imperialism, and it's just really, really phenomenally done. Batibe, do you have a recommendation? So Janiqua just reminds me of the fact that my copy of Home Going is sitting on like Delta Airline pl- Flight 370. <laughs> no. I left it in the freaking back pocket. So that hurts a little bit, but oh, it's wonderful. I'm really looking forward to um, being able to get another copy. <laughs> um, <laughs> My pick is going to be Throughline, uh, which is this NPR podcast that started, I think, last year, and I just came upon it. Um, I was a history major before switching over to pre-med and undergrad, and so this podcast beautifully goes through stories um, back into history. They did an interesting episode um, this past week on the police system and kind of the history of that in our um, American uh, society. Uh, they did a podcast on masks, the history of masks, the history of the 1918 flu pandemic. So it's been a really cool one. They're about 20 to 30 minutes, and I'd recommend it for other history nerds as well. Well, I'm going to skip a pick of the week uh, because of time, and, I, and I'd like to start us off here. But before we get to that, we did want to say that as a Curbsiders community, we stand in solidarity with the Black community. And this episode is made in memory and in mourning of George Floyd, Ahmad Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and too many others who have been prematurely murdered as a consequence of racism and police brutality. We acknowledge that this is an ongoing problem and not new, and that clinicians are reluctant to talk about the effects of racism and anti-Black racism on our patients and society. We believe it is incumbent upon us to address it now, and we as a podcast commit to producing more content to help each of us understand racism in medicine. Yeah, I think I'd like to to start with that point. So I I know something I've seen a lot and something I've probably said a lot is you sort of struggle with finding the right words. So, you know, you just you find a hard way to sort of discuss what's been going on lately. And so instead, you might sort of revert to silence. And I I think I'm probably guilty of that. And I often think about sort of how can I possibly discuss this with my patients in a way that that feels appropriate and gives them space to talk. And I just I feel kind of stymied a lot of the times. And that's probably just another way of saying I don't feel comfortable talking about it, if I'm being perfectly honest. So I guess I would start with the question to you, why why might clinicians be uncomfortable talking about race? And why would they be uncomfortable talking about its possible effects in medicine? Yeah, so I think the question is a really important one. And it's the idea that this is not just clinicians, that we are humans, that over the last few weeks, I've had friends them uh, who have known me for years, for decades, went to college with medical school, residency, who told me how awkward and uncomfortable they felt reaching out to me about these issues over the last few weeks. So I think that's the reality is that the history and legacy of racism in our country has kind of been quieted because of how traumatic it is, because of how hard it is to hear those stories and to see the images that they call to um, call to question. And I think just like any uncomfortable conversation we have with our patients, I I posted on Twitter a couple of uh, weeks ago that we as physicians are trained to talk to patients about their illnesses. We're trained to deliver their bad news. We're trained to call their family members to share them with them bad news. 
we are asked to encourage rather to ask them about whether they have guns in their homes, to ask um, females about domestic violence or males, anyone. Um, we're asked, we're trained rather to ask these really hard questions. Um, and there's no reason why discussions around race and racism should be any different. And so I'm hopeful that in this conversation and conversations that are really being spurred by the national um, conversation, that we can really prepare ourselves as physicians and as learners to have these tough conversations with each other as providers, with our patients in particular, um, because our patients are really struggling with this just as much as we are. I, I think another question I might ask is that, you know, I think this sort of the touchstone for this particular conversation is actually about um, anti-Black police brutality. I feel like that's sort of what sparked this national conversation largely. And I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking about perhaps it, the, the national mental health burden on Black Americans of just about hearing about these events and is there trauma associated just with these discussions? Yeah, so uh, one of my best friends, good friends from residency, Athene Venkataramani, who's a professor and health economist at the University of Pennsylvania, published this paper in The Lancet two years ago now to really show that not just the police killings happening in one's community, but even national conversations like these about police killings have a significant impact on one's mental health, um, both at an acute um, kind of more recent related to that event and even down and downstream. Um, other data have, and I think we can probably reference these, have shown the impact of um, police killings on young children, on um, younger people as well as older populations. And so I think it is important to think about that, not just the actual killing itself on black communities, but thinking about the mental health burden. You can think about how discrimination on an everyday basis or from hearing stories like these influence other health outcomes such as hypertension and other cardiovascular risk. Um, and again, just having conversations like these on a continuous basis, wondering when it's going to happen to us, wondering, um, like is going on a national conversation right now, how do we respond when there's a other pandemic going on in our, um, in our society is really quite difficult. Okay, so now that we've established that it's important for us, for all of us as clinicians to be talking about racism in our clinical and non-clinical settings, can you give us a broad overview of what health disparities and racism in medicine refer to? Sure. So I'm a health disparities researcher, as I mentioned, and health disparities are really the difference in care received by one group compared to another in this, in this regard in health care. Um, Racism, I would say, is, is one of the factors, one of the drivers potentially of disparities that we see in health. Racism or the um, discrimination or bias towards a group based on the idea that one group is superior to another group. Um, we've seen influence so many factors, not just health. We've seen it influence education. We've seen it influence housing and um, politics and policy. Um, and again, I think it is important to make that distinction and show that racism is a potential driver of health disparities, but these are two different buckets that we should be thinking about exclusively. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I guess I just wanted to add to just what is race, right? The definition that we um, that we use and race is really just a social political construct. There's no true biological basis, um, but it's driven what um, Dr. Issian has referred to as um, just racism, this idea that one group is better than the other driving health outcomes. As a medical student, um, we would when we're preparing for board exams, of course, like we're all familiar with using UWorld and different prep questions. And one common occurrence was just seeing how race would be 
a buzzword in these situations and how it could be a risk factor for something. For example, you could come across um, a clinical vignette with a patient who was noted to be Black and then is trying to get you to identify that there's a risk factor for asthma, but they're not acknowledging the historical context of that, not acknowledging that racism has made it a risk factor for them because they're more likely to live in environmentally toxic or like polluted environments and more likely to have exacerbations, which lead into uh, premature death. And so we really learn it in a vacuum and don't truly wrestle with what race is and how it influences health. So, and could I ask you, since we're on the, the subject of definitions, could I ask you to sort of compare that with this concept of white supremacy? I think sort of when you think about white supremacy, not when you, how about say, we'll put this back on me. When I think about white supremacy, I have very specific visions of sort of neo-Nazis and sort of this far right. And there's, you know, there's a very sort of these fringe movements or what I think of when I think about white supremacy. Is there another context in which that, that can be thought about? Um, yeah, so that's a great question. I think that a lot of people do have this idea that white supremacy is people donning the KKK outfit and going to protest and being a part of the alt-right. But white supremacy is so much more pervasive in our society than that. It's laid the foundation for structural racism. You know, it's this idea that we have this particular group, white people, and their existence and their ideas and their beliefs and their actions are superior to people of color. And we assign value and all these positive traits to white people, whereas for black individuals, we see them, even in the clinic, we refer to them sometimes as being lazy or unclean or criminal, among other negative stereotypes. Are there any other like phrases or terms that you think would be helpful as we go through this discussion that you wanted to highlight? I think that when we're talking about structural racism and white supremacy, we acknowledge that they result in these health disparities and we want to be champions for health equity. But I think that you have to discuss those two factors. If we really want you know, health equity, which would be the assurance of the conditions for optimal health for all people. And I think another thing that we have to consider, too, is um, the idea of implicit bias and how that's often used as a proxy for racism with regards to our um, discussion on discrimination in medicine. And I think that it's not sufficient. So why don't we walk through some ways that historical legacies of racism medicine might might manifest to us in the clinical setting? So Tibe, can you tell us how should we approach like certain metrics that, that are based in race? Uh, GFR is one that comes to mind. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, so there's kind of been this idea of patho pathologizing race versus racism. Um, this idea that Black race isn't associated with fewer medications, isn't associated with poor health outcomes, but it's actually the factors um, that lead to discrimination in those who are of Black race. And I think one example is the GFR, so glomerular filtration rate. Um, many of us know that there is a correction for race in that lab marker. Many institutions around the country, or some rather, are starting to address that and take away the correction. Um, but till today, there still is a correction for Black race based on the idea that Black individuals have higher muscle mass. So whether you're a a white weight uh, bodybuilder or someone like me who hasn't hit the gym in the last three months because of COVID, um, those corrections are still going to be there. Um, and so that, whether it's a GFR or you mentioned pulmonary function tests or PFTs, which literally the tool that is used to calculate that factor is based on 
race-based literature. I think the uh, doctor, Dr. Samuel Cartwright, who created the spirometer himself, thought that black individuals had lower lung capacities than white individuals, created the spirometer, some of which still have, again, a calculation for black um, race. And so thinking about the lab markers is really interesting. Um, There are other cardiovascular disease models that also capture race. Uh, There are researchers who just five years ago were suggesting that we add race to the chads vast score because of the fact that African-Americans with atrial fibrillation tend to have higher rates of stroke and mortality, which is my area of research. And again, like Janiko mentioned, without actually taking a step back, looking at the context and seeing what are the factors that really result in the outcomes rather than just adding an R to the chads vast. So I think as clinicians, we really need to think about how we um, look at these various factors that quote unquote correct for race. So I, I want to make sure um, I'm getting I'm getting the point correctly. It's a lot of these factors are either just not real, or maybe there's social determinants or structural racism that leads to these disparities. And just by blaming it, you know, by just putting the R as you said in whatever tool we're using, it just kind of papers over the fact that that all exists and we're just ignoring the these upstream factors that are causing these downstream effects. That's exactly right. We need to remind ourselves that race is a social construct, that um, it's not biological ancestry. My parents are West African, and so the I am literally African-American, but there are plenty of individuals in this country who have been here for generations who um, don't have that same lineage, so to speak. Um, and are so with the race, whether it's in GFR or in that Chad's Vascar, we're not capturing the social factors, the fact that because of our history of racism and discrimination, Black Americans tend to live in poorer neighborhoods, in neighborhoods that are segregated and thus have more housing instability, food insecurity, and lower education, many of which um, end up resulting in individuals with higher rates of cardiovascular disease and end-stage renal disease. So I do think it's an almost in a way a cop-out, so to speak, to, to just add the R there and not actually take a step back and look at the social determinants, like you mentioned, that are really driving some of these racial differences. What about with medications? Can you speak to uh, specifically like the, the DOACs, the oral anticoagulants? Yeah, so that's my area of research. So I love talking about them, um, convince all my interns to start a patient on DOAC for better or worse. Um, but so it was really interesting to think about these medications that came into the market about 10 years ago um, and have been shown to over the last 10 years be have improved outcomes individual, in individuals with atrial fibrillation for stroke prevention compared to warfarin, which for the last 30 years has been the standard of care. And so the reason that I got into it was really trying to understand, okay, there's this new drug in town, who's actually getting access to it um, and why or why not? And specifically looking at whether there are racial differences in access to these medications. And so we published a study, um, one study back in 2018 that looked at a large atrial fibrillation registry of about 12,000 patients and saw that Black individuals were about 37% less likely to receive anticoagulant or the newer anticoagulants, DOACs, compared to white patients. And once we adjusted for some of the social factors, so insurance and um, income and education level, 
that difference went away a little bit, but they were still about 20% less likely to receive DOAX. Uh, and we repeated a similar story in a Medicare uh, beneficiary patient group. So this was about 40,000 uh, patients with Medicare insurance. So we can kind of get away from the insurance issue. And again, the similarities were striking how about 20 black patients were about 20% less likely to receive DOAX. It was really be interesting to understand, okay, some of these social factors that we tend to believe are responsible for why patients aren't receiving drugs. You know, maybe it's because they don't have insurance, they can't afford that copay. Maybe they didn't know about the drug, they didn't know to ask their doctor about it. Maybe they didn't have a cardiologist who are more likely to prescribe these DOACs compared to us internists. Um, when we control for all of those typical and traditional social factors, we still saw a racial difference. And that I think leads perfectly into our conversation today. Is there bias? Is there discrimination that could potentially be playing a role in the use of newer medications like DOACs in our patients? I know this this might be an impossible question. If if you're, you know, I'm a physician, I'm seeing patients, is there, do I need to just stop and ask myself, why am I treating this person the way that I would treat every other per- patient? Is there, or is it, I don't know if I'm phrasing it right. It's just like, is there any practical way we can short circuit this if if it it just doesn't seem because I, I know that everyone wants to do good by their patients and it or do right by their patients. So mm-hmm. I just yeah, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense why this would be the case. Like Yeah. So for me, it's all about making the right choice, the easy choice. I think whether it comes to um, DOAX or it's the new newest lipid medications and new diabetes medications, which cardiologists are trying to steal diabetes from us, but darn it, we'll (laughs) we'll hold on to it. That's true. Um, (laughs) I think we still need to, we need to figure out how to make the right choice, the easy choice. And so I don't believe that that starts with you and I having a virtual um, Zoom conversation with our patients and asking them, why aren't they? on this newest medication, it's way higher um, than our level. It goes back to why these, why DOACs are $500 a month compared to warfarin that's $5 a month. Yes, even if I have a, a supplemented copay, I may feel a little bit more comfortable paying that, but if I don't have to, why should I? Um, and so that is, plays an important role. The fact that there still are certain medications that require prior authorization. And again, making the easy choice, the hard choice. If I have to go through hoops to prescribe DOAX for my patients, why can I just prescribe warfarin? They're doing okay on it anyway, right? And so it's a lot of these conversations that um, we can't have with every single patient, with every single condition, with every single drug, that if we do find a way to make the right choice, the easy choice, we'd, I think, be able to deal with some of these disparities we're seeing as well. I want to ask you about a paper of yours that made my tummy hurt when it first came out. I mean, a lot of them do, but I, they, specifically the the one looking at residency clinics versus attending clinics. And I, I think in terms of utilization and prescribing patterns, and then even sort of the the performance measures that kind of come out of that. And I just, um, it, it was a lot to take in and, and sort of, it just made me think a lot, which I hopefully was the point. Um, but I, I wonder if you wouldn't sort of review your findings there and sort of talk about what you found and sort of what we might do with that information. 
Definitely. So tummy pain is not the typical response that I hope to get when people read my research, but, um, <laughs> you it's know, a compliment, I promise you. Yeah, no, any bodily response is usually good. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so that, that paper was, was five years in the making. And as a primary care resident, I was really struck by how incredible my preceptors were at managing their patients. They just seemed like they had it all together. They knew the the latest screening guidelines. They knew when to give medications. They knew how to have the hard conversations with their patients. And as I was going back and forth between the ICU and primary care, I just felt like that wasn't possible for me to do as good a job as they were doing. My clinic is in Chelsea, Massachusetts, which um, for those of us who are holding on to Boston, COVID news has actually been one of the hardest hit towns um, in COVID with COVID-19 around the country. It's a largely Spanish-speaking immigrant population and unfortunately really has borne the, the disproportionate toll of this pandemic. And I really worried that not just me and my clinic, but my colleagues who are also at other community health centers, how are we providing the best care to our patients? who uh, this was their only source of care for a lot of them. You know, it was the hometown clinic. It was in their community. Uh, our residency tried hard to really put these community health centers um, in a place that was easily accessible. And so wanted to learn more about how our outcomes looked as residents compared to our attending colleagues um, on preceptors. And it took five years because of how hard it was to get that data. We needed to really find who the resident patients were more specifically. Um, and again, kind of look at some of the, the quality measures that we looked at, which included cancer screening in our study, uh, as well as kind of traditional risk factor screening, such as coronary artery disease and diabetes. And unfortunately, like he mentioned, um, Paul, we found that our resident patients were doing poor on um, both the coronary artery disease and diabetes screening, as well as the cancer screening outcomes compared to our attending patients, which was a striking difference and not what we wanted to see um, or hear. Um, but even taking a step back, I think the really critical, really, really critical finding in that study was how different our patient populations were. So resident patients were more likely to be minorities, higher um, racial and ethnic minority groups. They were le more likely to be non-English speaking, uh, more likely to be uninsured or have Medicaid as their primary source of insurance, and more likely to be living in poverty. If you just put all of those factors together, we can only imagine how challenging it is to manage one's diabetes, manage one's coronary artery disease, to make sure they can get over to the main hospital or the academic medical center to get their uh, colonoscopy, to get their breast cancer screening, uh, when they have just a myriad of other issues going on in their lives. And those are the patients that residents are taking care of, residents who may not necessarily be as savvy in these clinical guidelines and also just have so many other issues to address in a patient population that for the most part also was just recently hospitalized. And so we're trying to manage the post-discharge issues. So it was really interesting finding. I think it moved our hospital to rethink how they're addressing their residency clinics and having conversations like these, I'm hoping can really um, move other programs to think about that further. I imagine the the continuity issue too, right? The residents are turning over. I remember as a resident or just when you're precepting, they're like, oh, another new doctor. Like they they change every couple of years. And I, I can't imagine that that's, if you're an attending and you're there for multiple years, it's it's just such an advantage and you have so much more clinic days in general to see people. So it's it's 
uh, yeah, it is disheartening, but once you, with all the evidence, all the reasons you gave, it, I guess it makes sense that it would be the case. Is there any, any other clinical outcomes that you wanted to talk about? Uh, we, I know we have some other areas to speak about here. Is pain one of the ones that, that you wanted to get into? Yeah. So pain is a really important one. Um, I like threw on a John Oliver episode a couple of months, years ago rather, and saw that he was doing an episode on health disparities. And I was like, here we go. He's going to talk about DOAX. He's going to talk about residency clinic. Obviously he did not, <laughs> but he did talk all about my papers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was so ready. Um, but he did talk about pain, which I think is the one that really, um, really impacts people thinking and seeing that back in the year 2000, a paper came out that showed that uh, black individuals presenting with long bone fractures were less likely to get pain medicine for that fracture compared to white individuals. Um, or a study that came out just in 2016 that showed that um, of these individuals that they surveyed, including first year medical students, medical students still thought that black individuals had lower or less um, sensory nerve endings or thicker skin than white individuals. So the fact that like, again, 16 years 16 years from that initial study, but in the year 2016, that students who are going to be future doctors are actually still believing some of these myths around um, race-based medicine is really quite challenging. You know, the, the opioid epidemic has been hitting our country in a, in a pretty powerful way. And being in Boston a lot for training, a lot of my um, preceptors and uh, mentors studied this space. And I was really struck thinking about those responses to the opioid epidemic. And the one of the most striking comments that somebody made was that, oh, black race was actually protective of opioid ep- the opioid epidemic. So black people, because doctors weren't prescribing them opioids, um, were actually benefiting in this moment. Wait, I'm and, sorry, where did they say that? <laughs> what? <is it laughs> So I, I'm not the only person to hear this, but this is yeah. this these, like these have been on tweets. These have, no, these have been tweets. These have been comments and reported in New York Times and editorials. Hopefully, we can find them. Um, but this is this is what people believe and thought. It sounds like Paul, maybe you've seen that. Yeah, yeah, I, yes. <laughs> I have <laughs> yeah. nothing to add. I just yeah, right. I'm flabbergasting every single time. And so it's it was really. I was I was shocked to see that, and I think many of my colleagues, friends, whoever, black or white, were shocked to see that as well, um, because that's probably what people think, right? In 10, 15 years, maybe we'll see that oh, actually, DOAX weren't the best medication, and you know we uh, we shouldn't have been prescribing them for everyone. Um, but I don't think that's the the way to respond to this. I think we need to ensure that everyone has equal care, um, whether it's related to my research in, in cardiovascular treatment or pain treatment or the response to pain treatment right now and the opioid use disorder, who is more likely to receive buprenorphine in this moment uh, is really quite critical for us to be thinking about. I want to be respectful of time. And I know that there's been much discussion about this already, but I feel like this has to be the place to ask. And we can certainly cut this out, Matt, if, if you don't think there is, this is the place for it or, or um, but I, this feels like the time to talk about COVID a little bit too, right? Like I feel like in a lot of ways that we, this country and has sort of failed the stress test of the of COVID and its response to it has sort of highlighted a lot of disparities that, that exist. And I, I just wonder if you wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit. I've seen some tweets. And I know that you have a paper that sort of looked at it too. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how COVID has sort of highlighted um, some of the racism that we can see. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's um, someone said it perfectly. Said it's drawn a sharp focus into the health inequities in our in our system. 
Um, and I think it starts with what we're talking about today, racism. You know, racist policies, racist systems are the reasons that um, Black individuals, like I mentioned earlier, are living in neighborhoods that are more densely populated. Um, it's the reason that Black individuals are both the essential workers, or more likely rather to be essential workers in this moment, but also more likely to have faced unemployment once those numbers started to come in. It's the reason why they are food insecure and they don't have the ability to store months of um, food and their homes as we saw early on in the pandemic. Um, but we're having to go out to the grocery stores every week or every as often as they needed to. The reason that um, Black and brown individuals had poor access to health care in the first place. The 27 million uh, Americans that are uninsured right now, or a higher proportion of them are Black and Hispanic. And so when we were asking patients to ask your doctor about your symptoms, well, who was their doctor? How were they able to actually do that? Um, asking your doctor about your symptoms or even being able, to, being able to hear that information depends on if you have the language ability to actually access the public health information that we've been giving out over the last three months around hand washing, wearing of a mask, um, social distancing. What does social distance mean to a patient who doesn't actually speak English? Um, and so those two big buckets, both the social risk as well as the access, um, is how I've been thinking about this pandemic. Access goes beyond health insurance. It goes to where the testing sites have been right now. You know, there was a, a report that came out that showed that Texas, um, the, the testing sites in Texas were more likely to reside in uh, majority white neighborhoods compared to, to minority neighborhoods. And that's not just Texas. That happened in Wisconsin. And that's, that's happening in Chicago as well. Uh, and so it's such a huge issue. It goes way beyond us in clinics seeing a COVID, uh, a patient with COVID-19 rather. It's really some of these structural issues that we need to be thinking about in this moment. And again, goes back to way before we were doing podcasts about um, COVID-19 or race, but the policies and structures that have been in place in this country that have really solidified the fact that unfortunately Black and Hispanic Americans in particular um, have poor access to care in our country than other groups. Yeah. And I think that certainly that what's been going on with COVID has just really fueled a lot of what's happened in the past couple of weeks here and prompting, as you said, prompting us to be doing this podcast and you'd have been on so many podcasts recently talking about these very important issues. I do want to talk about um, what it would look like for us as clinicians to be to be advocates um, and to address issues of racism in medicine. So uh, maybe maybe we can start with uh, Janiqua. Um, what do you think residents and attendings can do to support support Black trainees in the wake of the anti-Black violence that we've seen in this country? I think that um, ways that we could support um, Black trainees during this time is when just acknowledge what's going on. You know, residency can be a really stressful time in general. And then on top of that, we have um, like the trauma, like we talked about earlier, of just seeing these images and having these discussions outside of the hospital, outside of the clinic. And that can be really difficult. And so just for the upper levels and um different attendings to be able to just acknowledge what's going on and offer ways to support and help whatever tangible ways that look like within their own institution and within their own team uh, would be especially helpful during this time. And I think generally, too, a lot of people 
are cautiously optimistic. You know, this has been going on, but finally we're able to name racism in medicine and that's encouraging. Um, but we want to see like actual action take place. And so not just, you know, posting a hashtag Black Lives Matter, but doing something about it in terms of helping with, you know, URM recruitment or joining local efforts with organizing regarding, you know, police brutality and seeing how you can actually step up and take action to help people right now. Utibe, anything to add to that? Anything specific you've done with your team and your trainees? I I, I heard you on some other shows talking a little bit about that. Any tips for people that are uh, in the hospital right now or just in a clinic working with the team? Yeah, so this these last few weeks brought to um, bear for me what happened five years ago. Um, you know, the phrase, I can't breathe, as we sadly know, isn't new. Um, Eric Gardner was the first in this situation to um, have those as his dying words. Uh, back in New York, in my hometown, um, he died at the hands of the police. And I would walk back into the hospital the next day after hearing his story, after watching his video, which is the last one that I've been able to um, allow myself to watch of these um, these horrible scenes. And there was silence. You know, the we started the conversation talking about looking for the words, the right words to say, and that was the the title of a paper or in my journal rather than I that I wrote. That um, you know, it felt like I was looking for the words to know how to tell others that I needed something more, that I couldn't just walk into work business as usual and not and pretend that nothing was going on outside. Um, you know, that was around the same time that White Coats for Black Lives and some of these um, other movements started to really grow. Um, and I was really proud to see medical students lead a lot of those forces, but I was really disheartened to see my faculty and preceptors and colleagues not be able to, to find the words to say. So fast forward five years later, um, I get back on the wards for the first time in about three months, literally the day after George Floyd died. And it almost felt like there was a reason why I was on the wards with a black medical student, with a black intern. Um, and I just felt like I couldn't be silent anymore. And so thinking back to my experience um, really led me to boldly call it out. I sent a message to my team because it's easier for me to write than to speak, which hopefully you guys aren't experiencing right now. But <laughs> you're doing um, great. <laughs> it's uh, and just let them know that I was there for them. Let them know that my experience in intern uh, or residency, rather, I wasn't going to allow that to happen again. And I was going to try to avoid the silence. Um, the next day, I again mentioned it on prior to rounds. Rather, uh, I mentioned that I, I thought it would be meaningful for us to discuss it with our patients as um, as we saw fit, but that no one should feel forced to have those conversations. And like I said, it wasn't just for the, the black members of my team. It was for all of us, I think, to really know that this was our this was our lane as well, so to speak. Um, and that if something is killing people, um, just like hypertension is, diabetes and obesity is, we as physicians should be able to think about that issue critically as well. I I think part of the point you're making there is that it's it's not this is not just a problem if you're black. This is all of our problems and all of us need to do things to address it. And uh, I think now uh, there's there's momentum for that right now. It's, it's been really heartening to see. And I mean, I, I would say that uh, personally, my, and I, this is a, this is a confession that it was 
my my gut response is like, I don't know what to do. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just not say anything or I'm gonna ignore it. But I I no longer think that is the right thing to do. And I think to educate yourself, educate your children, vote, donate. These are all the things that uh, Twitter has been very helpful. Uh, there's been a lot of great just education going on. And I feel like people are very open and just like soaking it up right now. Like I, I don't ever remember that in my life. So I am very uh, optimistic. Would like to call our audience to talk about these things, to show their support where they can. And there's a lot of organizations. Janiqua, I did want to ask you to talk a little bit about the White Coats for Black Lives that Utibe mentioned because um, I know you're involved with that and, and that maybe that will have some extra info for our audience, what they can do. Yeah, I think one tangible way that people can help is getting involved with White Coats for Black Lives and specifically our racial justice report card. So that was launched back in 2017 and it's a report card where we grade medical schools and their associated hospitals to see how well they're doing with regards to racial justice. So we kind of um, approach the topics that we've mentioned today, thinking about um, segregation for uh, patients of color being uh, seen by residents versus um, private patients being seen by the attendings. It looks at metrics that evaluate our um, URM recruitment strategies for particular schools and how well those URM uh, or underrepresented minorities are supported once they do uh, walk through those doors. We look at um, campus policing and seeing if there's disproportionate uh, policing of people of color while on the campus. And so there are a lot of metrics that we look at to see how well a school is doing or an institution is doing with regards to racial justice so that we can have a mechanism for public accountability. Tibe, have you seen anything specifically helpful within an institution or if there's people that are in leadership roles at their residency program or their, their department of medicine, like what you would call on them to do? Yeah, so I, I think the three steps and the ways that I've been thinking about this is listen, learn and lead. Um, very easy. Take home, grab that in your pocket. Um, so first listening, I think having the opportunity and providing the space rather to listen to um, whether it's black students, trainees, faculty about how they need um, the support of the health system, the residency program, the team is really important. Like you mentioned, Matt, reading the um, the tweets and the, the movements on social media, I think has been powerful for me as well to, again, see that everyone's experience is unique. Um, learning, I think, is critical. We have so many books and resources available. Um, MedPortal actually just published our recent uh, anti-racism um, readings for those who are in the medical education space to particularly engage with. Um, and then leading, I think it's not just up to the trainees and their residents, though it's been so powerful to see their movements, um, but it is up to leaders to kind of step up to the plate, so to speak, and um, take take uh, advantage of the momentum that there is right now. Perhaps this is the opportunity to start to invest in um, offices for diversity uh, and inclusion, offices and centers for research and health equity, for research and racism, which as we've learned are two different and distinct issues. Um, so I think that those are three critical steps. 
I was really proud of my residency back with the story that I had told you around Eric Gardner that we were able to start up a social justice interest group, which now has been known as a social justice community community and advocacy um, group, which is really doing powerful work and bringing in speakers for noon conferences and um, grand rounds and really incorporating a social justice mission into our education space. So that's not just a little elective that folks who are interested can get into, but it's really embedded into the programming. And I think um, this is a critical time to start thinking about that right now. Obviously, the structural changes will be the big drivers here, and I think are obviously very important things to focus on. But we all sort of work as educators and teachers, especially in the clinical setting and at the point of care. And I'm wondering, with your with your expertise in sort of health disparities and racism in medicine, what does it look like when you're just teaching at the bedside or in the clinic and, and talking to your trainees about um, what to do about that? And what does that look like specifically? Yeah, so I think modeling um, behavior, whether it's the modeling of how to do a physical exam and all the steps that we use to um, do well on step two CS is just as important in this conversation as well. You know, we need to, um, again, listen to what our patients are telling us. Um, they will tell us about their medications. They will tell us about whether they're adherent or not. We've really tried to stay away from the language of non-compliant or not adherent. A, um, I guess even taking a step back, I'll say that labels matter and language matters. Um, the um, patient who is just a, you know, a frequent flyer or um, some of these other phrases that were so commonly used uh, in the medical sphere, I think should be taken out. And we should, um, whether it's a resident or a medical student, make sure that we're calling it out um, and really modeling the right language. Um, modeling uh, why our patients aren't able to do certain things. Why um, have they been readmitted a number of times? Why does it seem like they are A1C is continues to be elevated despite the um, what we're giving them and thinking about like we've been talking about um, this time why and how race might play a role there so I've been thinking a little bit more critically about it and learning from from others as well learning that it's not just oh they didn't go to high school or college oh they are don't have a job but thinking about the structures that actually influence those um, we can't do this at the bedside but I think we can use our our power as physicians Positions to start to advocate for issues, whether it's uh, in our local communities or at a national level, um, advocating for better health for our patients in the same way, again, that we advocate through prior auths for them to get the best medications that they can get. I think we should advocate for the communities that they live in to be as healthy as they can be. Um, so again, it's a little bit removed from the bedside, but I'm hopeful that a lot of our conversation today showed that we as the, the folks who are sitting in front of the patient are ne not necessarily the problem. Unfortunately, there is a long history um, and legacy that has caused a lot of the problems that we're facing today. But by calling it out and by being thoughtful about some of these structures that are in place, I think we can start to make differences slowly but surely. I think we're probably at the point we need to ask for your take-home message for the audience. So, uh, Janiqua, did you have a specific take-home message? And then we'll go to Utibe next. Yeah, I guess I just have, have two main points. One, um, just 
do the work. You know, there are so many resources out there. Read, read, read. Just like we read JAMA, the New England Journal of Medicine, just like we read all these prominent journals. Um, there are so many resources out there, books, articles, podcasts that discuss racism, that discuss race and its intersection with medicine. And we should educate ourselves and find ways to take action within the clinic and outside of the clinic so that we don't contribute to the premature death of Black patients. And then I guess my second point would be I know that this can be a difficult conversation. I know that it can be hard, but I challenge everyone to embrace that discomfort, to be challenged by it. I know that it's hard, but imagine sitting with discomfort versus, you know, sitting in a jail cell or sitting under a bridge or sitting at a funeral because of the consequences of structural racism. We as clinicians like really need to use our platforms to learn how to be anti-racist and to pursue health equity. Utibe, I'm sorry you have to follow that. Yeah, Those follow excellent that, points, but good luck. <laughs> I was going to say about yeah. Jadipa uh, showing off her future education there. Um, so for me, I would say reminder that race is a social construct. I think that's kind of been the, um, the tagline for a lot of our conversation. Um, taking caution with pathologizing race uh, versus racism and remembering that it's racism that leads to a lot of the disparities that we see. And the reminder, kind of like Janique was said, to avoid the silence. These conversations are difficult, but again, back 10 years ago, I don't think any of us would have imagined that the this is our lane hashtag related to gun violence would be something that physicians would be pushing. I don't think a lot of us working in the addiction space would have been thinking that ending the stigma would be uh, a big pull in the academic medical society. And so I'm hopeful that in five to 10 years, conversations about racism are just going to be um, as casual, so to speak, as those conversations right now. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. All right. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Janiko Caesar and Hannah Abrams, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, on Twitter, Madison Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the True Man, True, on Facebook. Until next time, I have been Paul Nelson Williams. Oh, I was wondering if you were going to Ron Burgundy it. <laughs> well done. For the oh. whole thing. <laughs> Claire, please keep that in or put it at yeah. the end. <laughs> and I've been Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm confused and would be remiss in not thanking Stuart for composing our excellent theme music, which you are doubtless hearing now, as well as our eternal thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio, which might be an especial challenge tonight. As always, I have been Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.